You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Gerald Power from Metropolitan University, Prague. His paper was entitled Aliens in 16th Century Ireland. In 1517, the papal nuncio to England, Francesco Chiariciati, made a circuit through the northern hemisphere of Ireland. His visit centering on the famed St. Patrick's Purgatory, Ireland's premier tourist magnet. On the return leg, Chiariciati paused uh, near Dan Patrick. Uh, it was there that the nuncio met, apparently to his surprise, Tiberio Ugolini, Ugolino, uh, the Bishop of Down and Connor, who was from Lazio. Um, naturally enough, the two Italians happily socialised together. And Bishop Ugolino, then apparently at the fine age of 114 years, <laughs> arranged for his guests to go salmon fishing. <laughs> Such an encounter was undoubtedly, undoubtedly most out of the common in the 16th century in Ireland. Yet its occurrence underscores the central point I wish to make um, today, that Tudor Ireland um, has a murky history of foreign settlement or interaction. Um, What follows is an attempt to discuss foreigners or aliens in 16th century Ireland uh, by way of a three-pronged typology. Now, this presentation uh, will probably be seen, uh, you'll probably see it as being long on names, but perhaps too short on detail, an explanation. Um, now this is perhaps indicative of my own shortcomings as a historian, um, but it's also, I think, a result of the sources and, and the nature of the sources. And the primary source material relating to, to foreigners, to strangers um, in Ireland is far from complete, for a start. It's haphazard, varies greatly in terms of detail. For every richly observed travel log there are half a dozen simply very bare references in administrative records like the Fiends, um, which afford only a glimpse at our quarry. Um, uh, Also, I myself am um, kind of a foreigner in my adopted home of Bohemia, and this does restrict me in terms of the sources which I've been able to consult in preparation for today. I've looked at the uh, the Fiends for the reigns of Henry VIII to Edward VI. I've looked at calendars of patent rolls, Um, I've looked at certain of the calendar of state papers, uh, Ormond deeds and and, um, some well-known chronicles and antiquarian works, including on the church. Uh, Another major primary source which I've been able to access um, is the UCC Celt um, website, which hosts three important travel accounts of Ireland authored by continentals. The results of my researches um, are condensed in your hands. It's a preliminary handle list of foreigners in Tudor Ireland um, presented according to kind of professions or types. Um, it will have to be expanded 
uh, this list. Uh, if and when I succeed in broadening my pool of primary sources, I need to look at the original state papers, not calendars. I need to look at bills and statutes of the Irish Parliament, um, records of Dublin and other towns, and key secondary works such as Marion Lyons' uh, Franco-Irish uh, relations. Um, now, whether such an endeavour is actually worthwhile is unclear to me at this time. Uh, my motivation in, pres in presenting my preliminary results here today is partly to gauge the opinion of my peers on this question. The first point that must be addressed is one of definition. Uh, what was an alien in Tudor Ireland? Green. Okay. This is hardly straightforward. Um, Ireland was a territory, after all, in which each of the historical two nations, the Irish and the more recent arrivals, the English, um, uh, could each regard the other as being foreign. The Irish literati and political elite had very firm notions of Ireland as a centre of Gaeldom and senses of clan identity, of course determined by patrilineal descent. Um, so naturally they had a clear awareness of who were outsiders and they, they termed the English in their midst, the Gaul, the foreigners. Um, for their part, the English authorities in Ireland viewed those Irish as aliens, unless these Irish people were granted upon application for a fee, a charter of English, English liberty and freedom from Irish servitude. Additionally, there is the problem of those thousands, must be thousands of migrants from near abroad, soldiers, including mercenaries, merchants, pirates, officials, clergy, either from um, Gaelic districts of Scotland or from the other Tudor territories. Putting all of these together, it looks like we have one small island ent entirely inhabited by foreigners of one kind or another. Well, of course, we need to set aside these kinds of outsider um, in favour of aliens of a less ambiguous character. So my interest is on individuals or groups of people who originated beyond the British Isles and who can be said to have been distinct linguistically, culturally or in some other fundamental aspect from both of the two nations of late medieval Ireland. Um, so we're concerned here with continental Europeans in the main though we shall see that sometimes our story can be extra-European. So uh, from the outset, I want to put our problem in perspective. I'm not going to reveal today that Ireland was a secret haven of cosmopolitanism. Um, how could it be, given its per peripheral location in relation to continental Europe, its lack of a royal court or university, for most of this period at least, uh, and the relative insignificance of its trade and natural resources? The absence of these centres and these attractions meant that many of the usual types of Renaissance traveller, season, uh, seasonal unskilled workers, wandering students, journeymen, painters and expert tradesmen, they were underrepresented in Ireland compared to England, for example, Scotland. So the historian of aliens in Tudor Ireland, uh, by contrast, must scavenge through the various classes of of evidence for scraps of information. There is no, uh, like in England, in the late medieval period, there are registers of aliens for taxation purposes, for example. We don't have anything like that in Ireland. Um, that being said, when these scraps are viewed as a whole, um, it becomes clear that Ireland was home to uh, an alien population. Um, it's not just about the Irish and the English and the Scots. Though very small and, and often comprised of people normally not considered important by historians, I believe that some discussion of these outsiders is called for. This brings us to the main section of the paper. I'm going to offer a typology of aliens in Tudor Ireland, uh, beginning with accidental arrivals, 
We'll look then at professionals and finally um, at tourists. So accidental arrivals. Often travellers or mariners en route to other, other destinations who found themselves forced to sojourn in Ireland as a result of storms, sea or some other maritime misfortune. I've identified five cases, two very well known and three less so, um, of uh, these kinds of accidental arrivals. Um, doubtless further research will reveal more. Um, in 1518, Archduke Ferdinand, brother of Charles V, together with a large retinue en route from Spain to Flanders, was blown off course and forced to shelter off the County Cork coast. Among Ferdinand's company was his secretary, Laurent Vital, uh, who very fortunately for us wrote a detailed account of um, their four-day stay. Uh, Vital detailed his observations of life in Kinsale um, and passed on um, broader information about the social state of Ireland um, from his discussions with a French-speaking townsman. Now, whether or not the Archduke himself can be classified among the aliens is maybe debatable because he seems not to have disembarked from his ship. Um, What we do know um, is that three miscreants from the company were left behind to shift for themselves. They were left in Kinsale to learn Irish in Vital's words. This was punishment for rowdiness and harassing the locals of the town. We don't know what happened to them. Um, Also shifting for themselves uh, were the 500 or so Armada survivors, uh, 1588 to 9. Now little more needs to be said on this point because it's written about extensively um, already. Um, And we have a very valuable first-hand account um, from Captain Francisco uh, de Cuellar about his uh, travails um, in Ireland. Um, One point that can be made in passing uh, when we compare Vital in 1518 with de Cuellar in 1588 to 9, um, is that despite the very different circumstances that brought them to Ireland, um, both discuss uh, the Irish population, the Gaelic Irish population, in similar terms, in terms of savagery, brutish, savage, bad, wild. These are the adjectives and, and descriptive words that, come, that are very common um, uh, in both descriptions of the society which they, they confronted. Um, uh, so Vital seems to have related quite well to the townsmen of Kinsale, but he makes no bones about talking about um, uh, witnessing savages um, in, the, in the town um, as well. Uh, de Cuellar, meanwhile, he moans constantly about his hosts, his fellow Catholic hosts, um, observing that his first exposure to, to real gentility was when he came to Scotland. Um, other continental travellers' accounts of Ireland those of Kieri Chatti um, and the German Ludolf van Munchausen um, speak in very similar terms. This is a continental trend of people when they're exposed to, um, to uh, Gaelic people, which is interesting. Um, now, as for some of the less well-known examples of, of accidental aliens, um, we can start with the arrival in autumn 1541 of a party of so-called Egyptians, gypsies. Like the Habsburg prince and the Spanish army, the Egyptians had been driven by stress of weather, according to the Fiend, onto Irish shores, and almost certainly as a result of a royal expulsion order um, from their country of residence, which was Scotland. Two notices, and both in the Fiends, tell us something about these gypsies. Um, first, they were clearly an, an unwanted addition to the Irish population from a government perspective. 
and the first fiend dealing with them um, uh, records that they have 40 days to quit the kingdom. And the second fiend recited that one of the gypsies, Powell Fayoff, had been indicted for the theft of a Drogheda merchant's consignment of fabric, precious fabric. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the gypsy, however, had appealed first to the Irish Parliament, then to the Lord Deputy himself, um, and eventually availed himself of a, of a pardon. This seems very much uh, of a piece with what historians of gypsies have found in other territories, that gypsies frequently marginalised, stigmatised for addiction to crime, um, but also capable on many occasions of successful negotiation with legal and governmental institutions. A final very tantalising notion in regard to these gypsy visitors was the possibility that they spoke Gaelic. Uh, the, the, the gypsy population appears to have been widespread throughout Scotland, and if they left the west of Scotland, which would explain why they were shipwrecked in Ireland, maybe that they were able to speak some Gaelic. Um, apparently gypsies in other countries like Spain quickly assimilated and learned to speak in local languages. So it's unknowable, but perhaps these are a very rare example of foreigners to Ireland who could converse with the native Gaelic population. Um, two final examples um, uh, concern captives of one kind or another, and they both show Ireland's position in a rapidly developing Atlantic world. Um, sometime in or shortly before 1569, a Spanish Hidalgo, Juan de Mendoza, was engaged as an impresario, an impresario of a Caribbean estate. Apparently, Mendoza gave victuals uh, and water to a party of Englishmen who repaid his kindness by seizing his treasure, kidnapping him, and depositing him in Ireland. <laughs> this was Hawkins the pirate. <laughs> Eventually, Madrid had to send an envoy to secure his release. Um, and if Mendoza's plight arouses pity, what are we to make of the unique sale, it seems, in 1591, of a shipload of African slaves? We know about this sale from a travelogue of 1591, um, written by um, von Munchausen, Ludolf von Munchausen. Um, he encountered a Spanish slave ship, a ship full of Negroes, which was intercepted by English mariners, and for some reason its contents sold um, in an Irish town. The second category of aliens I've, I wish to talk about are the professionals. Now, this title is no doubt oversimplistic, it covers a multitude of social classes and motivations for the pursuit of a living in Ireland. Um, I, kind of, I think I adopt a negative definition of professional. It's someone from outside of Ireland who was resident in the country for neither reasons of misfortune or accident, but neither for reasons of leisure or personal piety or, or choice uh, of that nature. Some of these people had the explicit support of the English administration in Ireland, and some were absolutely personae non grata. Um, in the latter category, we see the various agents of foreign powers who undertook missions for their princes in Ireland. And very often, of course, the purpose here is uh, reconnaissance with a view to providing perhaps aid to anti-Tudor rebels or to promote the counter-reformation. Um, though one exception is the Spaniard Juan de Castillo de la Lu, who was charged with recovering cargo seized uh, from his compatriot. Domingo de Alano. Then there were the armies and their captains from Augsburg native Martin Schwartz and his German mercenaries, I think it, about 2000 in 1487, uh, down to Don Pedro de, de Aguilla's force at Kinsale, and there's the 600 strong papal force um, at Smerik in 1580. These are all written about, are well known, 
Um, other professionals had more enduring associations with Ireland. An obvious example are certain of the senior clergy. Um, although the allotment of, of bishoprics was a, ha a haphazard process involving many vested interests, it appears striking that in 1483, uh, Pope Sixtus IV uh, nominated two continentals to northern seas, northern Irish seas, the Athenian um, uh, Georgias Vranas to Dromore and the aforementioned Tiberio Ugolini uh, to Down and Connor. They augmented the incumbent Archbishop of Armagh, Octavian de Palazzo, um, possibly of the Florentine banking family Spinelli, uh, which provided Henry VIII's servant and ambassador, uh, Thomas um, Archbishop Octavian's career in Ireland is well known and reasonably well documented. Um, interestingly, from our perspective, he found livings for at least two of his kinsmen. Um, Georgios Franus, on the other hand, was in Ireland by 1482 when he bore a papal letter of indulgence to collect alms in order to ransom his family, who were apparently living under Ottoman control, captivity in Greece. Um, and if you look at the list, you'll see there were several itinerant Greeks in Ireland at that time. Um, by the end of 1482, Varanus uh, had been given a charter of English liberty. He'd entered the Augustinian Priory in Dublin uh, as a canon. And seemingly he became very close to the Pope, to Pope Sixtus, um, and seems to have been chosen by him to promote one of his pet projects, which was the revival of a confraternity for orphans called the Order of the Holy Spirit. Vranas superintended the construction of a hospital for the order um, at Trim sometime after 1493, a place which was known into the 17th century as the Greek Church. Um, although Vranas was almost certainly an absentee bishop and had taken up a position in Scotland by 1525, he left an impression on Irish observers as several of the Gaelic annals record his, his death, the death of the Greek bishop, um, although he was not well liked to judge from the comments on his on his death. Um, of Tiberio Ugolino from Lazio, I have not been able to discover much so far, apart from the interesting fact that, unlike Vranas, um, Ugolini appears to have been a resident in his bishopric, um, as we have seen Chiericati encountered him uh, on the way back from St. Patrick's Purgatory. Moving beyond the clergy, we encounter continentals uh, who were in possession of a particular skill that made them sought after by patrons in Ireland. Um, Edward VI government placed the German, Joachim Gundelfinger, in Clonmines, County Wexford, to superintend the mining operations taking place there. And one of his assistants was John Antwerp, from Antwerp. In the mid and later 1580s, there was much talk of importing Flemish experts to begin a woad processing plant in Munster. That seems to have been aborted without the projected settlement actually occurring. Um, as previous studies, um, including the recent works in Ireland and the Renaissance by Tom Heron and others, uh, they have shown that, that members of the high nobility in Ireland were in touch with continental developments in, in the arts. And we have got evidence of at least one family and the butlers of Ormond retaining the services of esteemed continental professionals. If we look at Roth's pe uh, pedigree of the Ormond family, it speaks of Earl Piers and Countess Margaret Fitzgerald, uh, bringing out of Flanders and other countries diverse artificers who were daily kept at work by them in their castle at Kilkenny, where they wrought and made diaper, tapestry, turkey carpets, cushions and other like works, whereof some do remain as yet 
with the now Earl of Ormond. Um, looking at Stanyhurst Chronicle of Ireland, he doesn't mention the Flemish artisans, but it, it does feature a well-known quote um, to the effect that Countess um, Margaret was the only mean um, at those days whereby her husband's country was reclaimed from sluttishness and slovenry to clean bedding and civility. So who better than the Flemings to provide the clean bedding? Piers' successor, James, meanwhile, recruited a Florentine named Martin Portocello as his master gunner. Um, there are a couple of references to Portocello among the Ormond deeds. He was granted property in, in Kilkenny City. He married into the, the local Shi patrician family. We have scraps of evidence also that point to continentals living in the towns and clearly engaged or in, some, in some kind of trade. There appears to have been, for some time at least, some Hanseatic merchants, because we have a pardon issued in 1553 to a Danziger for the murder of a fellow Danziger. Um, around the same time, English liberty was granted to Pierre Trimlet and Pierre Perrin, described in the Fiant as French travelling smiths. In 1569, a Venetian was living in Ireland of unknown profession, but he wrote a description of Waterford and its potential as a launch pad for a Spanish takeover of Ireland, gave it to the Spanish ambassador in England. To judge from the author's detailed knowledge of the town, we can guess that he was resident of, of, of Waterford. Meanwhile, the Saxon aristocratic traveller, Ludolf von Munchausen, he seemed to have a preference for boarding with Northern Europeans in Ireland. He began his Irish journey in, the house, uh, in Waterford in the house of a, a woman from Cologne. And he ended his sojourn in the Dublin house of a shoemaker, Peter von Herren from Bruges. He said it was for the sake of speaking German. Other references are bare, frustrating, but, but intriguing. There's a pardon in 1549 to Thomas Fay, Egyptian of Dublin, yeoman. So he's got a, he's got a citizenship status in Dublin. Um, and he's called a yeoman, which hints at, at some kind of respectability. Um, so maybe Fay was a naturalised gypsy. Oh. Fay, of course, is a border surname. Oh. Fay is interesting. It's a border surname in Westmeath, but it's also the... It's a synonym, synonym for gypsy in Scotland. In Milanese, Antonio Vince, also styled a yeoman, he took out a chart of English liberty for himself and his issue in 1555. I have no other information on this man. So the third and final category, tourists. Um, again, could be misleading, as, as pilgrims had perhaps more spiritual, deeper motivations for coming to Ireland than, than mere leisure. But anyway, these people, pilgrims, tourists, they chose to go to Ireland and they were always transitory visitors. And so it makes sense to look at these people together. Now, unlike the earlier types of alien in Ireland, where meaningful patterns are quite hard to discern, in the tourist category, it appears that Ireland undergoes a transition in the 16th century from um, pilgrimage centre to outre grand tour destination. Um, before Luther's rebellion... There is ample evidence that Ireland, especially St. Patrick's Purgatory, was this magnet for, for pilgrims. Um, although out of our time period, we can mention the Catalan noble Ramon um, de Perilos, who's got an account from about 1400. He talks about the high profile of the pilgrimage um, site in, in continental Europe. And there are more after him. Um, then in 1516, an unnamed French knight um, makes a trip to the Purgatory and stays with um, O'Donnell who I think is Manus at that point. 
Francesco Chiericiati, he visits the purgatory in 1517. This is the papal nuncio to England at the time. He affirms the popularity of the place, talking about there were, the fact there were five pilgrims with him on the very day of his arrival. He has a look at the visitor book, a parchment book, see all the names of visitors. Um, nevertheless, if you look at Chiericiati's visit, it seems like a turning point in the history of Irish tourism. Because this Italian was not a pilgrim, and pilgrim. he looks more like a humanistic um, inquirer, an ethnographer. Um, J.P. Mahaffey, who, who um, transcribed this, he talks about it as being a mere tour of curiosity. So he saw the purgatory as, and Ireland in general as something interesting and curious to relate to his pe- patroness back in Italy, the Countess um, of Mantua. And I've got two more paragraphs. References to tourists then dry up for several decades, but they reappear with a vengeance in the 1570s when we've got three separate German touring parties. And then we've got von Munchausen in 1591, as our list uh, details. Um, It seems to me that the aristocratic grand tour is is beginning in the 16th century, and it's mostly centred on classical Europe, or what's left of classical Europe. Italy is the centre of this. But for... For adventurous Germans, it seems that Ireland, Scotland, is a, is a destination that they wish to have a look at for danger, for exoticism, for cultural encounter. We have some clues in the state papers, but not a lot. Um, von Munchausen, his purpose for visiting Ireland in 1591 was to see the miraculous Insula Viventium in County Tipperary. He had read about this in Geraldus Cambrensis, when um, he also takes the opportunity to look at the social political, topographical state of the country as well. So these German tourists are interested in in sensation and pleasure, perhaps as much as education. Um, To conclude, very briefly, I've tried to argue that here that that Ireland is home to this small but diverse alien population. It's temporary, it's permanent. It ranges from the accidental arrivals to professionals in church and state um, to pilgrims and tourists um, now I'm not sure whether, these, whether the bits and pieces of evidence which I've assembled today um, amount to little more than a footnote to more important issues, or if collectively they constitute a very valid historical problem in their own right, worthy of further research and time and discussion. So I welcome your comments at the end of this session. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.